Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Bagshaw, MD, MSc, about his article, Long-Term Association Between Frailty and Health-Related Quality of Life Among Survivors of Critical Illness, a prospective multi-center cohort study which was published in the May edition of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Bagshaw works as an associate professor of critical care medicine at the University of Alberta. He is also Canada Research Chair in Critical Care Nephrology and a clinical investigator for Alberta Innovates Health Solutions in Alberta, Canada. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Bagshaw. Thank you very much, Michael. I was really excited to uh, to see your work. I guess I saw it a little bit in advance as we discussed, but published last month. And perhaps we could begin by, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in uh, this aspect of critical care medicine regarding health-related quality of life indicators after critical illness and frailty. Yeah, I'd love to. I think we're quite excited by having had the opportunity to publish in critical care medicine some work that we've been working on over the last couple of years. And really, this work ultimately came from the bedside, in my view. Myself and my colleagues here at the University of Alberta, while doing rounds in the critical care unit, often had discussions around patients who we felt were frail. And it dawned on us that we really didn't have a good definition for what that constituted, but all of us knew what a frail patient looked like, perhaps, when we encountered them. And so... After doing a little bit more sort of reading and and research around that, my colleagues and I decided that, you know, we can actually operationalize frailty in the critically ill. There are definitions and tools used to diagnose frailty that have been adapted from geriatric medicine for the most part. And we thought we could apply that to critically ill patients. We wanted to see, you know, how common was frailty first and foremost amongst you know, a a large cohort of patients admitted to ICU. But then we wanted to know and understand what the implications were for a frail patient who suffered an episode of critical illness. And so, in all honesty, it was something that came, it was driven right from the bedside. A clinical question arose, and uh, we pursued it with this study, and we've been very happy with the results so far. Yeah, interesting. So maybe you can take us through that a little bit, because... I see different definitions of frailty and different ways of measuring frailty and did speak recently on another podcast with uh, Darren Hyland slightly uh, about frailty, but I'd love to hear your take on, is is this something that we can and should be measuring at the bedside? So frailty is a syndrome to some extent, and I think there is general consensus about what a frail state may be, but there isn't necessarily universal consensus about how to define it. What we do know, though, and what we probably understand, even though we don't understand all its biological underpinnings, is that frailty is often multidimensional. It's often characterized by the loss of physiologic or cognitive reserves in a patient. And another way to view it is, is patients accumulate deficits over their lifetime. And at some point, those deficits culminate in you know, a patient becoming more frail, more disabled, more slowed up, if you like. And as a consequence, they they enter in what we call a frail state. And so there's a number of different sort of plausible explanations for how patients can get to becoming frail. 
but they probably share to some extent a final common pathway, that is a frail state. You're right when you say that there is a number of different ways to potentially define frailty, and there's been a number of different tools that have been developed to measure frailty in various clinical situations, most often as in geriatric medicine for, for outpatient, elderly patients is where they've been mostly developed and validated. But increasingly, we're now seeing some of these tools being applied to inpatient services, such as patients undergoing elective surgeries, particularly major gastrointestinal, orthopedic, and cardiac surgeries. But also, we see it in cardiology. And, you know, us and some other groups in Europe have started to work on this phenomenon or this, this idea of frailty amongst the critically ill. One of the things that is difficult when you are confronted with a critically ill patient and trying to understand whether their premorbid state was characterized as being frail or not uh, is some need to sort of, you know, go back in time and get an estimate of what they were like before they became critically ill. And not all tools that are currently validated for elderly geriatric patients, if you like, can be necessarily translated into the critically ill settings. So we've adapted some of these tools and used tools that we found to be you know, fairly simple to apply and can be understood broadly by a range of providers. I had looked at the measure that you use. Is it the clinical frailty scale? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that if you like. So the clinical frailty scale was a basically a nine-point, originally a seven-point scale developed from the Canadian Study of Health and Aging and published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 2005 that really looked at, you know, a seven-point sort of Likert scale that used informed subjectivity of a provider to rate a patient's level of frailty, if you like. And it went from a one, which would represent excellent fitness and no limitations, to a seven, which would be, you know, very severely frail. And this was work done out of Dalhousie University in Halifax. Since then, there's been some adaptation to the scale, and the scale now goes from one to nine. Nine represents a patient who is ultimately palliative and may, in fact, not be frail. So for the purposes of our study, we used some slight modification of that tool. We used a, an eight-point scale, scores from one to eight. And one, two, and three representing patients who were not frail and who are relatively fit but had increasing levels of some difficulty. The score of four represented patients who would be what we consider vulnerable to a frail state. And then from five, six, seven, and eight, those represented patients who had frailty and had different degrees of frailty. So a higher score represented more severely frail. And what we really did is we asked clinicians, the, the admitting intensivists, to use all information at their disposal, including medical record, including past medical history, interview with the patient, interview with the family, and any other information at their disposal to try to provide what they felt was a score that represented the patient's state prior to developing critical illness. And we also had it done by trained coordinators as well who extracted the same information. Oh, interesting. So the responsibility for ultimately defining the degree of frailty was based on the treating physician and also uh, sounds like a research administrator type person? Yeah, for, for the purposes of our study, we had the trained coordinators 
uh, apply the clinical frailty scale to every enrolled patient, but we also collected information from the providers at the same time to get some sense about how well they agreed with the trained coordinators in their application of the clinical frailty score. That's interesting. How, how was the correlation? To be honest with you, it was pretty good. We haven't published that data yet. I'm not going to comment on it too much further, but we have some plan to publish that in, in a methodologic piece in the next little while to show the details of agreement between the trained coordinators and the variable providers, intensive care providers that were able to provide the score for us as well. Oh, that's neat. I look forward to it. Certainly looking at that tool, it, it seems like it's a relatively easy tool to apply at the bedside when speaking with family members and, and certainly people who have seen the patient previously. And I think that's part of the rationale for why we use the clinical frailty score. We looked at a number of different tools that can be applied, including some of them that were functional. So some measures of frailty that people have evaluated in various other settings include gait speed, get up and go test various measures of cognition, et cetera. Unfortunately, when you're confronted with a critically ill patient, often you're not able to perform those functional measures. And various other tools that were available at the time required elements that you just can't extract all that easily when confronted with a critically ill patient. So we felt that the clinical frailty score had the best opportunity for being adapted for critical care settings, at least up front. Great. Yes, it was... uh... Certainly it does look, uh, again, like a tool that we could all use more often to uh, better prognosticate in the ICU, which which your study gets at. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how this study was organized. Is this Was this organized as, a, as even a larger observational study, or yeah. was this uh, unique in and of itself? So this started off as a small pilot initiative, but we recognized early that there'd be more value in trying to get a broader representation of critically ill patients in the province of Alberta where we live. So we recruited six hospital intensive care units, two academic centers, four community hospital ICUs to participate and contribute patients to the study. So we felt like we actually had a fairly generalizable cohort of patients that represented what we see in the province of Alberta whether that's translatable to other jurisdictions outside Alberta or Canada, for that matter, remains to be seen. But, you know, from our perspective, it was a nice sort of population-based approach to evaluating the frequency of frail, frail patients admitted to the ICU, but also being able to track their clinical course and understand what their outcomes were, both in the short term and in the long term. Yeah, and certainly is. a... Uh in some regards, unique to many of the such studies that we see, that a decent long-term follow-up out to, I guess, about a year. Yeah. One of the unique features of our study as well is one of our initial hypotheses were that, you know, patients who become critically ill, short of those that have a planned major surgery or a, a traumatic event, but if you are susceptible to critical illness, there might be something about your pathobiology or your biology in general that makes you susceptible. And one of the things that we've noticed about a lot of other studies that have examined frailty in various clinical settings, including those that have looked at it in critical illness, they've almost universally focused on patients who are greater than 65 years of age. And to us, that's a little bit arbitrary. And we hypothesize that, you know, if you were frail, yet you weren't over the age of 65, you may become more susceptible to critical illness. And so one of the reasons why we included such a young age cutoff for our study, and if you note, 
the inclusion criteria said that you just had to be aged 50 years or older. This is one of the reasons, because we felt that if we only selected patients beyond age 65, we actually might be missing what we believe is a significant proportion of patients who are otherwise frail and develop critical illness, yet they might only be in their 50s. Oh, very interesting, yeah. As you were talking, I'm thinking of the young versus the old. I guess I was also thinking that perhaps frailty can wax and wane. I guess so someone can go through a bout of, for instance, critical illness, become quite frail, but then recover. And um, I was just wondering how that would fit into the overall course and predictiveness of that episode of frailty. You know, I think you're, and I think you're very right, and that's an excellent sort of thought to consider. Certainly some patients may come to ICU not be frail or let's say on the clinical frailty scale score, have a score of three or four, be vulnerable. Yet they have a major physiologic insult, such as, you know, an episode of critical illness, and it takes them to a vulnerable state to an overtly frail state. And they survive their episode of critical illness, yet they suffer some long-term sequelae. And this kind of aligns to some extent with you know, the increased focus we have on rehabilitation after critical illness and the post-ICU syndrome. And what's interesting to me is that you could track a patient's frailty status over time by using a tool like the clinical frailty scale. You could get a sense about whether they shift towards a more frail state or, in fact, have some improvement with rehabilitation and recovery into a state that's not considered frail any longer. And that's one thing that we have done with our study, and we're hoping to uh, share some of those findings in the near future. Great. So perhaps you can take us through the results and what your, your main findings were. Sure. I mean, I think the main findings of our study was that amongst our cohort, we enrolled 421 critically ill patients aged 50 years of age or older. And what we found was that the prevalence of frailty amongst that cohort at baseline was, in fact, one-third. About 33% of patients had, you know, clinical evidence of frailty based on a clinical frailty scale score of five through eight. And what was interesting to us, there were certain clinical characteristics that seemed to characterize these patients without question. The patients were a little bit older, it's true. These patients were more likely female. These patients had a higher burden of pre-existing comorbid illness and certainly had some impaired functional status at baseline. What was interesting, though, is that whether you were frail or not, these patients, once they got to the ICU, they largely received support commensurate with their illness severity. So there was no difference between the frail and the non-frail in terms of how they were supported in the ICU. Similar proportions got mechanical ventilation. Similar proportions received vasoactive support, renal replacement therapy, et cetera. And they had similar, although slightly longer, lengths of stay in ICU for patients who were frail. What was interesting to us, though, is that their mortality in the ICU was not, in fact, different. But where we saw a clear difference in mortality over time was in hospital and over the subsequent 12 months following enrollment in the study. Patients who were frail had a much higher risk of uh, adjusted risk of mortality, both in hospital and over the subsequent 12 months. We also found that those patients who were frail and survived their ICU admission stayed in hospital much longer, almost two weeks longer than patients who are not frail. And this probably speaks a little bit to the pathobiology of recovery amongst a frail patient compared with a non-frail patient. 
their recovery needs might be very different than those of someone who is not frail. This may be where it's important for us to try to discriminate a frail state at baseline because our expectations of how they recover may be very different. In addition, we also looked at, you know, what was their quality of life using two validated instruments, the SF12 and the EQ5D, at 6 and 12 months after enrollment among survivors. And what was interesting to us is that we did show that frail patients, in fact, had a significantly lower quality of life at 6 and 12 months compared to not frail patients. We did see that quality of life was also modified by how old patients were and their level of frailty. So the more severely frail somebody was, the more impaired their quality of life was at 6 and 12 months. What would you say surprised you about these findings? One of the things that we found as well is that what was interesting to us is that, um, you know, looking at specifically the SF12, the mental component and the physical component, you know, some of the data actually didn't show significant differences at six months per se. And what we found, particularly in the mental, there was, you know, evidence of, of some difference at six and 12 months. But in the physical function of patients at six months amongst the survivors, there was no difference. But what we found at 12 months, that there trended to be a difference, and it was probably because the frail patients actually had deteriorated, whereas the non-frail patients actually had made some gains. So there were some differences in the trajectory over time, we believe, between the frail and the non-frail patients. What very much interested me was when we looked at some of the elements related to the EQ5D, looking at specific elements like mobility, self-care, usual activities, pain and discomfort, and anxiety and depression, we found across the board amongst all survivors of critical illness, the rates of problems amongst the survivors was very, very high, but it was clearly exaggerated among patients who had baseline levels, uh, a baseline state of frailty. So patients who were frail, for instance, at six and 12 months, nearly three quarters of them actually had difficulties or major problems with mobility. More than half were unable to provide self-care. And, you know, less than 20%, in fact, were able to resume usual activities. These rates were still high amongst not frail patients, but were vastly higher amongst patients who were frail. And was age at all a surrogate for frailty in terms of outcomes or quality of life indicators? So what I can tell you about age is, is we know that, you know, as we age, patients have a higher likelihood of becoming frail. So frailty and age are certainly correlated, but they can be mutually exclusive to some point. Just because you're elder doesn't necessarily mean you're frail, and we have shown with our data that younger patients can also be frail as well. But when we look at the data in aggregate, we do see that there is a trend for a higher prevalence of frailty amongst older patients in the ICU such that in patients who were aged 50 to 64, the prevalence of frailty is around 28%. But if you go to patients aged greater than 75, that prevalence increases dramatically and is probably closing in on half. It's interesting. I work in, a, you know, a primarily surgical ICU most of the time, and that percentage surprises me. I don't know if it su- surprised you at all, the prevalence of, of frailty, and I guess were these mostly medical units? So I have to confess, well, I was a little bit surprised by how common it seemed to be. The 
distribution of units that we recruited to participate in the study. So the two academic units are large quaternary medical surgical trauma, one of which is a transplant unit. So all services for the most part. The community hospitals would all be rated as general medical surgical ICUs. And so this is a mixed population for sure. So some are medical, some are surgical. And I'm just trying to recall the proportion of patients who were surgical. I think it was around one quarter of all patients in the study, uh, in fact, were surgical. Yeah, it's actually 25%, probably around 30% of all patients enrolled in the study were, were surgical. So I'm curious, as you've really delved quite into this deeply and with a lot of data information, I struggle with how to provide prognosis in the ICU. So for instance, I'll give you two examples. Maybe we can just change the scenario based on frailty. But I, So I have a gentleman who's in his upper 70s in the ICU, fell, broke a bunch of ribs, developed respiratory failure, then pneumonia, and then renal failure and hepatic insufficiency and has been in the ICU now for 10 days or so and is, is quite ill. And he, so this particular gentleman was quite robust, so he was definitely not frail. He was supposed to be scuba diving this week. But then I imagine, what if that patient was frail? And how do I, how do I use such data that we have here to help guide that discussion and help uh, inform folks at least a little bit better estimates of what prognosis might look like, and especially in terms of quality of life? Yeah, so I think, you know, our studies offer some new knowledge from this perspective. Evaluating a patient's baseline level of frailty and then, you know, looking at a study such as ours and tracking how that patient did over time in terms of surviving to leave hospital one, but also then looking at, you know, their perceived quality of life at six and 12 months, but also, you know, the burden of new disability they acquire. And I didn't mention this, but their discharge disposition, right? So a significantly higher proportion of patients who are frail at baseline ultimately went into either a skilled nursing facility or required new assistance at home to get by. So first and foremost, I think this kind of information can simply provide some baseline level of information for patients and families about what they could expect provided patients survive their initial episode of critical illness. And for the most part, you know, most patients in, in modern ICU practice now are going to survive. In our view, in my view, anyway, it's very uncommon that we have somebody who's completely unsupportable. That's generally the, the minority. What we have is patients who get really sick, who have multiple organ dysfunction, who may stay for a long period of time, and either a decision is made to persist or a decision is made to withdraw support and palliate. This kind of information may be able to provide some expectations of what to expect if survival was to occur and what kind of recovery patients may be able to expect. So in terms of new disability, new dependence, discharge disposition, and what their quality of life is, in particular as it relates to new disabilities. I think, you know, if we can inform patients and families about what we can expect, uh, it might not align with what patients' preferences are, and there may be earlier decisions about, you know, withholding or withdrawing support. That is one possibility. The alternative is that, you know, it does actually inform expectations of recovery. So it might be able to identify a cohort of patients, those who are frail, either frail at, at baseline or perhaps acquired frailty really rapidly through their episode of critical illness but are surviving, we may be able to tailor some of the specific 
rehabilitative or recovery needs for a frail patient that you know wouldn't necessarily be applicable to a not frail patient. So are there specialized needs when we transition these patients to the ward? Are there specialized needs for when we transition these patients perhaps to the community? Is there earlier intervention with specialists like geriatric medicine specialists who are familiar with geriatric syndromes and frailty and the needs related to that? That might be something that we don't do a good job of right now. We may need to focus more specifically on on different aspects of cognitive, psychosocial, or emotional recovery amongst the frail versus the not frail. And ultimately, we also are probably going to inform families about the expectations of recovery and what kind of burden that may have for them, what kind of experience family members may, uh, may expect. And, you know, increasingly we're recognizing, I think, in critical care medicine that, you know, the recovery of a very sick, critically ill patient over a long period of time can certainly take a significant toll on, on family members. So I think there's some, you know, information we can provide to patients there. That's great. Very well said. And very much appreciate your emphasis on maybe what does this mean and what can we do to change these outcomes and make them better, rather than purely the focus on how do we counsel patients, perhaps more towards end-of-life planning. But both are obviously important. So thank you much. This is a great contribution. Are there other thoughts that you wanted to share or points that you wanted to get across before we do close? No, I think the only thing I'd like to emphasize, I think the, the next phases of work that we would like to be able to proceed with using this as sort of a template, a background is, you know, trying to now design a healthcare system that can focus on the recovery needs of some of these patients who will survive and how we can ultimately get them to a place that, you know, makes them uh, most content with respect to their quality of life and maximizes their physical function, cognitive function, et cetera. So we are working on the next phases of that right now. And hopefully, uh, you know, in the next few years, we'll be able to inform the literature a little bit more. So you're actually working on um, creating or planning certain defined interventions for these, this patient population? Yeah, we're currently working on a provincial-wide implementation plan to measure frailty amongst all patients who are critically ill in all ICUs in the province as a routine clinical measure. And I think once we have that enabled, we may be able to then specifically identify these patients early on in their ICU experience and then perhaps have opportunity to tailor interventions or evaluate interventions that may be able to either maximize recovery or uh, at least inform about the choices and course in ICU. Well, that's very exciting. We look forward to more work from your team. So thank you very much for joining me. It was a great conversation, and I certainly learned a lot and look forward to implementing uh, frailty screening in my ICU. That's great. Thanks very much, Michael. I appreciate your time. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM.
is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.